Hello, flight instructors and NAFI members. John Niehaus, Director of Program Development for the National Association of Flight Instructors, welcoming you back to another episode of the NAFI More Right Rudder Podcast, the podcast for flight instructors on the go. And today our episode is sponsored by ICOM. From students to professional pilots and ground crew, ICOM has the right handheld, mobile, or panel mount VHF radio for you. Pilots choose ICOM for features such as Bluetooth, bright displays, and easy-to-use interfaces. For stress-free in-flight operations, choose ICOM at Before Flight. Now, I've got a couple housekeeping items I want to talk about real quick before we get to today's presentation. Sweat Showers, Not Thunderstorms by Scott Denistat. Um, I feel like I'm not hearing enough from those of you that are listening. Um, Whether it's domestic, international, I'd love to know where you're from. Um, maybe what kind of airplanes you fly, what kind of instruction you might provide or, or where you are in your flight training. Um, I'd also love to know, um, a little bit, uh, about how you like the podcast or things you don't like. Do you like the unique content, the, um, audio from mentor lives? So you can listen to them on the go. Do you like the audio from, uh, presentations at air venture sort of makes you feel like maybe you were at the show, even if you weren't. Um, cause we do have some, uh, uh, recordings and they're better quality than last year, I promise. But, uh, um, we have recordings from this year that we're excited to share. Um, so I'd love to just know a little bit of feedback from you on, uh, on what it is that, uh, that keeps bringing you back or, or makes you share this with others. And if you want to reach out, uh, you can email me at nafi at nafinet.org. So N-A-F-I at N-A-F-I-N-E-T dot O-R-G. You can also contact us on social media. We're on all of the uh, the typical media platforms, including the new um, meta threads, though we're sort of just building that. It's kind of a small little thing at the moment. Um, but uh, you can reach out to us that way. The more interaction we get with uh, with all of this, the better. And uh, maybe even we might invite you on the podcast. Maybe we can sit back and, and talk together. So um, that would be great. Anyways, uh, if you can also, uh, you know, just remember the typical YouTuber, like, subscribe, rate the podcast if you can. All Every little bit of that helps. So um, sweat showers, not thunderstorms. And that's by uh, Dr. Scott Denistat. Now, this was a mentor live we did a couple months ago, and it got such good feedback that we wanted to turn this one around into an audio podcast uh, quicker than we normally do. And uh, basically, he says that the training you received to stay far away from thunderstorms is the wrong approach. It'll lead you down the primrose path to falling into a deadly trap in the future. Yes, thunderstorms are dangerous, but it doesn't take a supercell to ruin your day. Now, he's got a whole bunch more information. I think you're going to really enjoy it, and uh, I think you'll learn something. Because I think really, as pilots, we we have a good understanding of weather, but uh, probably not as much as we think we do. So um, Scott is going to uh, to give you some some information that, shoot, it might save your life someday. So anyways, um, again, we appreciate you listening. And without further ado, sweat showers, not thunderstorms.
I'm Karen Kalshik, Chair of the National Association of Flight Instructors, or NAFI. And I have a question. Would you like to become a better flight instructor? Join hundreds of other instructors at the first national conference hosted by NAFI. You'll enjoy in-depth content from aviation luminaries such as John and Martha King. You'll have opportunities to network with your peers and leaders in the aviation community. You'll hear firsthand from regulators about the latest and upcoming issues affecting our industry and see the exciting products and services that our many exhibitors have to offer. Come to the NAFI Summit and go home with the tools to become a better instructor. I look forward to seeing you October 24th to 26th at the Aerospace Center for Excellence Skylab on the Sun and Fun Aerospace Expo Campus in beautiful Lakeland, Florida. And welcome everybody to sweat the showers, not the thunderstorms. So we're going to be looking at some topics that are near and dear to my heart and some of the things I've been working on over the last 20 years. And it's a message that needs to go out to a lot of pilots and flight instructors. So let's go ahead and dig in. And I'm going to take it kind of slow for the most part. Lots of slides to get through, but I don't want to necessarily uh, plow through the details. My name is Scott Denstead, and I'm a CFI and former National Weather Service Research Meteorologist. I'm also a contributing editor for Flying Magazine. So anybody out there that has Flying Magazine, take a look at the latest uh, couple issues. You might see a, an article or two I've written uh, in the magazine itself. So I'm going to be working with them for the next uh, foreseeable future, hopefully to help improve the weather knowledge for that magazine. I'm also the founder of Easy Weather Brief. Easy Weather Brief. It's a progressive web app at easywxbrief.com. And I'll tell you more about that near the end. And also, I am the author of the Skew T Log P and Me. It's an ebook and also a soft cover book. So if you're interested in a Skew T diagram and learning more about it, and it's a very hot topic these days. Um, I have a book I released last year, uh, just before Air Venture, that's available. And again, I'll tell you more about that near the end. And I'm also the co-author of Pilot Weather from Solo to the Airlines. This is a book written by myself and Doug Morris, who is a Boeing 787 captain for Air Canada. And for the older crowd out there, you may remember the AM weather program that was on at, let's say, 6 o'clock in the morning on PBS uh, years and years ago, of course. But I think it was the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It was uh, through a grant through the FAN through NOAA. Well, I'm trying to do a reboot of that. been doing it for a little over a year now. A daily, what they call the Daily Easy Weather Brief, starts at 7.30 a.m., uh, Tuesday through Friday on YouTube Live at my YouTube um, channel there, AVWX Workshops. So if you're interested in tuning in, it's about a 15-minute program that gives you an overview of the weather across the country, and you might learn something about weather in the process. Okay, so I usually, when I do this program, I ask pilots in the audience and I say, what is the most significant weather threat for summertime flying? And I know that most pilots think they know the answer, but I give them a hint. It's not thunderstorms. 
So the most significant weather threat for summertime flying is not thunderstorms. And that usually gives everybody a quick pause to figure out what that might be, but I'll go in further explain that the training you likely received to, day, to stay far away from thunderstorms, I believe is the wrong approach. It's an approach that I don't teach, but I do know a lot of pilots that receive that kind of education. I think this will lead you down the primrose path to falling into some deadly trap in the future, which I'm going to explain. So yes, I don't want to downplay thunderstorms they are dangerous and you should still you should stay away if you decide to tangle with a thunderstorm well so be it you're going to end up um, in a bad situation but it doesn't take a full-blown supercell thunderstorm to ruin your day so my direction when i teach this to pilots I focus on the concept of convection. So I try to teach them how to minimize their exposure to what I call deep moist convection, DMC. So you've probably heard of the, the group Run DMC. My goal is to try to teach you to run away from DMC. So I think Anybody who's done any training uh, over the last 20, 30 years has probably seen this particular uh, graphic here. This is the thunderstorm life cycle graphic that you can find in uh, AC00-06B aviation weather. And inherently there's nothing wrong with this particular uh, diagram. Everything you see here is correct. However, a lot of the focus is on the mature stage, that stage in the middle, and maybe even the dissipating stage, but not the towering cumulus stage. And that's where I think we're going to focus on today, and that's where I think most pilots don't get enough education in this area as a result, it leaves them in with a hole of information that they don't ever quite grasp. So that's what we're looking at focusing on in this program, this first stage of the thunderstorm life cycle. So many years ago, I had a, one of my students ask me to define a thunderstorm. I thought I could come up with a pretty easy answer seems like a pretty obvious definition to be able to produce. But actually, I had a lot of trouble doing it. I came up with a lot of answers that I didn't like, but I did find eventually the National Severe Storms Laboratory in uh, Norman, Oklahoma. I found that they had one of the best and pretty simple definitions for a thunderstorm. Now, when I show it to you, you some of you might actually chuckle and laugh at the definition. That's okay. I did when I first read it, but I gravitated to this because it really gives you a very good overview of what a thunderstorm is all about. So they define it as a rain shower, 
during which you hear thunder. Yes, you can chuckle. That's okay. And since thunder comes from lightning, all thunderstorms have lightning. But the key phrase there that I'm going to focus on in this presentation is the term rain shower. Rain shower is the key here because a thunderstorm begins as a rain shower. So every thunderstorm out there has to start somewhere. And although in that graphic you see it as a towering cumulus stage, which is correct, ultimately I think it's better to teach pilots that all thunderstorms begin as a rain shower. So before the first lightning strike, that's what we call it, a rain shower. And we also know that not all rain showers grow up to be mature thunderstorms. Some just stay rain showers. So again, the rain shower is the beginning of that convective process. So you have to think of that, think of it that way, is that the rain shower is the beginning of the convective process. And the term rain shower for a lot of pilots doesn't quite sink in the way it should. So again, I'm going to focus on that in this presentation today. So why should you care? So you see, I was departing out of a, um, an airport here and ended up uh, seeing this supercell thunderstorm on the right and moved out of the way from the supercell thunderstorm so I was not anywhere near it. But when you look at this supercell thunderstorm there, would anybody here make a hard right turn and fly into that thunderstorm? I would hope nobody would, but why? What is it that would cause you not to make a hard right turn and turn right into that? Maybe that's the, the path of the, the most direct path, but you would not do that. And the reason why you wouldn't is pretty simple and basic. So don't overthink this because it just looks threatening. You would never fly into that because what you see doesn't look good. Plain and simple. Doesn't get much, much more simple than that. So nobody's going to take the time to make a hard right turn, I hope, and fly into that supercell thunderstorm because it looks nasty. So who remembers the fatal accident, Delta Flight 191, at DFW on August 2nd, 1985? If you're a history of aviation accidents, a student of aviation accidents, you might, might, you might have uh, been, uh, at some point in time, um, have read about this particular accident. Or if you were alive at that time, you might have actually went through it and, and grieved with the, uh, the passengers and crew on this particular flight. So the question is, was this due to a supercell thunderstorm? Was it a case where this particular crew flew into a supercell thunderstorm or below one? So there have been no airline accidents caused by supercell thunderstorms. Again, go back to what we talked about earlier. Most 
intelligent and and uh, safety-oriented pilots would not fly into anything that looks ugly. So in the end, we look at the conditions right prior, five minutes prior to this particular accident. So the accident happened about 6.05 p.m. Central Daylight Time. And so right before that, it was a 6,000-foot scattered deck Estimated ceiling was 21,000 feet broken. Visibility was 11 miles. The wind was 120 degrees at eight knots. Ouch, the temperature 101 degrees Fahrenheit to dew point 65. And there were cumulonimbus reported north and northeast, well outside the terminal area. And so one clue comes up here very quickly. First of all, this is not something that looks really all that threatening to most people. That temperature dew point spread, we call that the dew point depression, is huge. Very dry conditions below the cloud bases. The dew point, 65, is really, really a, uh, a very moist dew point. A lot of fuel for convection, a lot of fuel for thunderstorms. That temperature dew point spread being so large tends to favor microbursts. So when you have a situation where the temperature dew point is so far apart as that precipitation core begins to let go out of that shower, you get a lot of evaporative cooling. Cooling makes the air denser and heavier. And as a result of that, it tends to be accelerate downwards as that cooling effect creates that downdraft or microburst in many cases. And so that's probably one of the first clues that something is awry temperature and dew point spread, or what's called the dew point depression. But in general, most people would look at those conditions and not blink an eye. This is not a big deal. It does not look threatening. Well, doctors Ted Fujita and Fernando Caracino, they were two recognized experts in the field of microbursts and, and tornadoes. You may recognize the Fujita scale. That's the uh, tornado scale The uh, that's uh, where you see F1, F2, F3. Now it's been since enhanced uh, to the enhanced Fujita scale, but he was the person who identified and defined the scale for tornadoes. And both of these experts have repeatedly emphasized, well even before this accident occurred, that microbursts are frequently generated from benign appearing cells. Not from supercell thunderstorms, although they can happen there as well. Microbursts are frequently generated by benign appearing cells. So if you look at what was happening, here's a picture of the satellite image right around the time of the accident. And you do notice that the DFW airport 
north and east of that airport, pretty far away, there was definitely some mature thunderstorms occurring. But look at right at the area around the DFW airport. Not much going on there because, again, this particular cell that ended up uh, causing a microburst was not a big, massive supercell thunderstorm. This was a benign appearing cell. So even the case of having, so if you're, if you're basically being trained to avoid supercell thunderstorms, and then you'll avoid the possibility of, of, of finding it in yourself in a microburst, that's not the right training. The nine appearing cells are what you should be more concerned about in terms of the possibility of stumbling into a, a microburst event. I brought this up um, because microbursts are not just this thing that, that you see. You'll, you'll see the image where it just basically shows a shaft of air coming straight down and kind of spreading out. Some microbursts, and many of them, actually will have some kind of spiral to them, making the winds even more chaotic. And so when you're looking at a microburst, you can't just think about that wind coming down. So if you think about that swirl or that spiral to it, in those particular cases, it makes it even more challenging, extremely challenging to recover, given the fact that it's just not wind that's straight down. So you can do the best you can. You can follow all the guidance that you've been given to power yourself out of a microburst. You might find that in this case uh, may be very difficult, uh, depending on how the microburst originates. Uh, we'll see um, a YouTube video coming up shortly uh, where you'll, if you pay close attention enough, you'll see a kind of a swirling aspect of one of the microbursts that we show in a bit. So it's also important that we were able to detect microbursts. So many microbursts actually have little or no lightning associated with them. And it's due to essentially the low top nature. Again, think about the fact that this is not a full-blown thunderstorm, so the tops of these cells are not going to be up there in the 35, 40,000 feet. In many cases, they can be what are called low-top convection, which means the tops are at 25,000 feet or so. And so this particular microburst here, actually near where I live in Charlotte, actually had a, a pretty significant amount of lightning with it, but again, that may not be always the case. So if you're flying around in an airplane that has a, um, an onboard radar system, that's great. But in order to detect the microburst, you need actually the Doppler portion of the radar. And, uh, and then you can actually determine the possibility of a microburst occurring or the fact that one did occur. And so it turns out that microbursts are probably not as rare as you might believe. And again, you have to think about the fact these are microbursts. They occur on a very small spatial and temporal resolution. Typically, spatial resolution, the size of a large airport in terms of the runways. And a temporal resolution may be somewhere in the order of two or three minutes up to four or five or six minutes. So they're really small in terms of they, they occur in very small scales. So in many cases, they can occur out in the middle of nowhere, and nobody is necessarily going to spot them unless they're looking for it. But they actually do occur a fair amount. And, of course, when they occur near an airport, uh, they become problematic for us. And so when the, one of the best ways to look at it is through the Doppler or velocity data from 
the radar depiction, either from a NEXRAD radar or, in this particular case, from the terminal Doppler weather radar. And so TDWRs were essentially put in place at, at very high-impact airports. Um, and as a result of that uh, accident back in, uh, in Dallas-Fort Worth, this is some of the technologies that came out of that in a better way to try to understand the possibility of microbursts. And so essentially, when you look at the velocity data, what you're looking for is anywhere you see green, and you can see where the Doppler radar is actually located, it's actually off the airport grounds. It's actually not on the, in this case, Charlotte Douglas Airport grounds. They wanted to, they have to offset it by six or seven miles because they want to have the radar being able to uh, scan the approach corridors for that airport. Because if you put a radar right over top of the airport itself, there's a cone of silence in that area. You don't want that. But in any way, there, the fact is, is that anywhere you see green, that means that you have, and especially bright green, you have air that's moving toward the radar site. And then red, bright red, means it's moving away from it. And of course, if it was moving tangential to that uh, radar site itself, you would see a zero velocity. So basically, on the radar detection, you'll see this dual node situation. And it doesn't matter whether it's a wet or dry microburst. This particular situation that the, uh, the radar is detecting, in this particular case, the radar is detecting uh, hydrometeors in the atmosphere. It could be raindrops. It could be dust or debris or insects. Whatever the case may be, they're detecting in the movement of that, either toward or away from the radar. And so when forecasters... Uh, can see this, they can actually know that there was a microburst that occurred there. And even better is that if air traffic control, uh, because these systems uh, provide information to controllers, uh, those microburst alerts can be given to controllers, and then that can be relayed to pilots that there's microbursts in the area. Um, unfortunately, because this is a case where you have uh, microbursts occurring right now, kind of late in the game to be able to say anything, but ultimately what you want to do is make sure that that second or third or fourth aircraft on approach knows about that and can make a better decision. All right, so green toward the radar and red away from the radar is how we detect it, whether it's a NEXRAD radar or these terminal Doppler weather radars. The terminal Doppler weather radars are only um, have a range of about 60 nautical miles. Uh, they don't really do great for reflectivity, that you would normally look at with all the fun other colors of, of uh, magenta and red and, uh, and yellow and such. Um, but they really are good at wind, and that's essentially the Doppler portion of it. All right, so let's look at this particular case. So here's an example. This is out in Chandler, Arizona, where they get a lot of microbursts out in this area. So let's look at what a little rain shower can do. But again, first, does this look threatening at all? Lots of blue sky around. Uh, if you were, obviously this was taken from the ground, but imagine if you were, you know, maybe five or 6,000 feet above the ground, headed to an airport under that area there, this really doesn't look all that threatening. So let's take a look and see what a little rain shower can do. I hope everybody was able to see that. Let me go ahead and go back and try that again. Oops. 
Okay, here we go. And you can see here that precipitation load comes down and produces that microburst out of a little rain shower. Okay, so that's, that's a period of about, total period of time of about 10 minutes or so uh, that you see in that video. Uh, but that's essentially a very small, but nevertheless potential potent rain shower producing a microburst. Very common to see these, especially out in the desert Southwest. Here's another example here. This is out in Tucson, Arizona. And yes, there's lots and lots of blue sky around. You can see where the blue sky is located here. Uh, and it looks a little bit more ominous, but the base of these clouds and the, even the previous one were about 10,000 feet above the ground. So again, very high bases. So anytime you see 10,000, 8, 10, 12,000 foot bases to the clouds, again, that's a good indication. You've got a lot of dry air potential below that to produce the possibility of a microburst. So let's look at this again, and you'll see that actually in this particular video, there actually are three microbursts that kind of happen back to back to back. And in the end, the last two have a little bit of a twist to them. So once again, here's what a little rain shower can do. There was no lightning at all in any of that, those cells at all, either one of those. This was a rain shower. In fact, I took a look at it and there was not a lot of convection in the area that was producing lightning on these particular days. So again, it's not that supercell thunderstorm that's going to be problematic. It would be, these cases, it would be uh, these kind of smaller and somewhat benign looking to, of course, until you get the actual microburst to occur, looking cells. All right, so let's look at the results of a rain shower. So this particular bonanza ended up in extreme turbulence while in IMC, and if that doesn't send chills down your spine, nothing will, at 7,000 feet. It ended up recovering about 1,200 feet above the ground, slightly on its back, spiraling down, and of course, diverted to a small airport, overran the runway a bit, but that aircraft is definitely reusable. You can imagine only the amount of adrenaline that was occurring at that time. And if you look really carefully, what you'll notice is that the pilot's side uh, window there is shattered. And the pilot, when I, I talked to him, did not know necessarily why that shattered, whether it was his head hit the, the, the window or if it was the case of having the uh, some object hitting the window or flexing of the, um, of the airframe. Don't really know, but you know, I can only imagine it got really loud very quickly in the cockpit. So this pilot was headed from Poplar Grove up in uh, north central uh, Illinois, headed down to Tennessee. And you can see there the diversion to I-96, a small airport in Kentucky, after encountering 
of this extreme turbulence. And so I went back and looked at the weather as this pilot was making his, his trip um, from the north uh, west to southeast. And as a result of that, what you're looking at is the next rad mosaic about that time he's passing through here. And if you look carefully, what you'll notice is that the next rad image is there's nothing here that's extremely um, you know, nasty looking uh, per se, but ultimately it's got a cellular appearance to it. So that cellular appearance that you see here is a good indication that a convective process is in place. So cells like this mean you've got convection forming. Again, maybe not necessarily thunderstorms here. In fact, there is no lightning at all in, these, in this area. This is what's called low top convection. And if you looked at the terminal forecast for the Louisville area, what you notice here is that there was a forecast for showers in the vicinity. VCSH, showers in the vicinity. Again, emphasizing that showery precipitation is a convective process. So this is a showery precip kind of scenario. And so if you look at this here, what you'll notice is that this is closer to the, the location where the upset occurred in IMC. And that little area that's uh, circled in red, uh, this is not the FISB um, uh, snapshot or screenshot that, th that this particular pilot would have seen. He had FISB in the cockpit. But this is probably due to the inherent delay in this. This is probably what it looked like as he was approaching this region. So again, you got to be real careful about the delay that occurs with your onboard weather. And in this case, this is likely what they were seeing at the time. And then what you'll see here is that I'll run a loop of this and you can see that cell develop right on the tip of that arrow there. It blossomed up very quickly, okay? It's just a, a loop that gets, uh, goes over and over again here. So ultimately, this is a case where the the atmosphere is boiling in this convective environment, this showery precipitation. And unfortunately, he happened to fly right through it. And that turned the airplane upside down. So again, this is not a supercell thunderstorm, not a thunderstorm at all. This is showery precipitation. He happened to hit it at the wrong time. You definitely don't want to uh, enter into one of these little low top uh, convective cells when it's in the middle of building uh, and that's what the case was. It was a rapid buildup, and the tops were not more than about 25,000 feet. So again, low top convection, little or no lightning associated with it. So if you're going to look and say, did this pilot do a good enough pre-flight in this particular case? Actually, not bad. So you can see the, uh, the, the flight-aware path on the left, and on the right side, this is the thunderstorm forecast outlook from the storm prediction center. And you notice that anywhere you see white, there's less than a 10% of seeing thunderstorms in that area. So from Northern Illinois, all the way down through Tennessee, not much to, to really speak of in terms of having any thunderstorms. Again, that's misleading because you can still have a convective process in place, but not necessarily, you know, thunderstorms. And now let's look at the 
surface analysis chart from that time. And if you look at, again, from Illinois down to Tennessee, for the most part, it's under high pressure. And most pilots were taught that high pressure is good. As a result of that, you know, again, the pilot's thinking about that's not a problem at all. Um, so, and it's also on the cold side of the front. And usually when that front comes through, it tends to stabilize the atmosphere for the most part. But again, in this particular case, if you're only looking at the surface charts, you're missing a lot of important information. And one of the things I try to spend a lot of time on with all my students that I do um, training online is simply to look at the full depth of the atmosphere. So I always look at a higher up and specifically, I like looking at the 500 millibar chart, which is roughly 18,000 feet. And you can see here with that upper level trough on the left, that's that U-shaped pattern there, I've put in a, what I call a trough axis there. And really it's not until that trough axis is all the way through that region that weather generally really improves. But that trough axis is basically some colder air being pulled down from Canada and you have cold air aloft with rather warm air near the ground that produces instability. And so essentially what was happening is this particular region was, was had some instability showers. And, and some of those were quite uh, nasty in terms of small airplanes being able to fly through them. So always make sure that you, you look at the complete picture here. You don't want to necessarily always just look at the surface analysis or surface prog charts. Spend some time, learn how to read the upper level charts. There's a lot there that you can utilize that essentially uh, will, will help make uh, help you be make better decisions in the long run. And I, I, I look at the 500 millibar chart sometimes several days out to see what's happening. And that, that trough axis that you see there is a good line of demarcation. Essentially, anywhere on the leading edge of that, on the right side of that trough axis, generally you have disturbed weather. And on the other side of it, weather generally starts to improve pretty rapidly after that. So again, this is all about timing sometimes. If he had waited maybe a a few more hours to make that trip, things might have gotten much better. So just a, a, a little bit of background here. In order to get lightning, technically to call it a thunderstorm, you need three ingredients in sufficient quantity. I'm gonna very make this very simplified here, but essentially you need super cool liquid water. You need what is called grapple, or soft hail. So if you had grapple, you had a piece of grapple in front of you and you picked it up and put it between your, um, your thumb and your index finger and squeezed it, it would basically just crush it. So grapple is another thing. And then you need ice crystals. So when you have those three in sufficient quantity, you can get lightning in the clouds. If one of those is missing, and sometimes it might be ice crystals with low top convection. You may not build enough ice crystals in the clouds. You may not get any lightning. One of the famous cases where we saw uh, lightning strikes um, to aircraft was Apollo 12, if you remember that. I think it was struck twice uh, when it was at liftoff, shortly after liftoff. It was struck twice by lightning. And just the, in, the indication is that it was an aircraft-induced lightning strike. And most aircraft get struck by lightning, not just because they happen to be 
uh, you know, get struck by lightning uh, due to natural lightning. In many cases, it's aircraft induced. And so in many situations, especially low top convection, it's not unusual to not have a natural lightning strike, but you can still get struck by lightning, especially if you're flying around the freezing level. So this particular pilot ended up flying into this low top deep moist convection that had no lightning whatsoever associated with it. So technically not a thunderstorm, it was a rain shower and it wasn't gonna grow up to be a thunderstorm either. So again, it's very common to have little or no lightning in these this low top convection. And as this particular pilot saw, you can get extreme or severe turbulence in association with these little rain showers. So my points, every, every, every uh, time I talk about this particular subject, always remember that you, you don't stop doing weather analysis just because you get in your airplane. Uh, anytime you close the door on the cockpit to depart, your weather analysis should continue. You should always be ahead of the game. You should think about what, what's happening in front of you so that you can understand better and you're applying that to what you learned on the ground. So if you're doing a proper pre-flight, don't stop doing weather analysis. Keep that going even when you are uh, flying um, uh, and, and thinking ahead of, of, that, of that particular weather scenario that is coming up. And so here is a, uh, here's a depiction. I was departing out of Charlotte Douglas Airport, um, headed to Birmingham, Alabama on a particular day. I, so I brought up my Sirius XM weather, um, and I, I noticed that there was a lot of cellular kind of appearance to it. And I had the lightning turned on. So there was no doubt that, that there was lightning out there, but not in the area that I was flying. So all of these cells that you see here that I've marked, these are all just rain showers. Some of them look pretty ugly. Again, this is all low top convection that was occurring on this particular day. So all of what you see here are convective rain showers. And, you know, and, and nice thing about Sirius XM why I use that over the FISB is that the SiriusXM provides both uh, intracloud or cloud-to-cloud -cloud lightning strikes and cloud-to-ground lightning strikes. So you get all the lightning uh, that's out there, whereas FISB only provides you with cloud-to-ground lightning. So in this particular case, um, I was a little bit concerned because I knew that this was not just about you know trying to uh, trying to uh, be in a situation where I worry about thunderstorms, you also have to worry about these convective rain showers. So anytime you see a forecast for showers, you should automatically think that it's a forecast for convection. The two are the same. Anytime you see hear the word showers, you should think convection. So if you see in a TAF, for instance, rain showers in the vicinity, or rain showers in the terminal area, VCSH or SHRA, that's a clear indication you have a convective process in place. And notice here on this particular TAF, there's no CBs or cumulonimbus clouds on the cloud group because technically it's not a thunderstorm. So these are rain showers. And so you, want to make sure that you are reading the forecast discussions. 
if you have if you're not reading the forecast discussions you're probably missing a good portion of the forecast so all the terminal forecasters out there also issue a discussion there's an aviation section and another section on the synopsis and other uh, short-range forecasts, long-range forecasts, and such. But the aviation section should be written uh, in a plain English uh, kind of a way so that pilots understand it. Again, those forecasters are issuing the tasks. They're also writing um, this area forecast discussion. Uh, and it's for that particular area uh, that they issue the tasks for. And so the important thing to remember is sometimes showery precipitation is a placeholder for a low confidence thunderstorm event. So in the end, when you look at this, um, when, you, when you look at a, uh, any type of situation where you're looking at the, um, the TAF, when you look at the area forecast discussion, it may help you better understand why the forecast was issued the way it was. In my case, for the, the, the flight from Charlotte to Birmingham, this is what it said. It said scattered showers and perhaps a thunderstorm are expected across the North Carolina Piedmont from the afternoon until early evening and will carry VCSH for now to cover that threat. That's a really good indication that, that they're basically looking at the scenario and going, well, we really don't want to put thunderstorms in the TAF itself. And so what we're going to do is we're going to throw in showers in the vicinity as a way to tell pilots that, hey, there's a convective process expected in place here. And as those showers turn into potentially thunderstorms, they will amend the TAF, include TSRA in instead. Um, and that's very common because there's really no way for a forecaster to quantify his or her uncertainty. Yes, there's a Prob 30 group that they could put in for possible thunderstorms, but that's not allowed to be in the first nine hours of the TAF itself. So how does a forecaster quantify his or her, her uncertainty in the forecast? Well, this is the way they do it. VCSH or SHRA are good placeholders for a low probability or low confidence thunderstorm event. So again, if you're reading the area forecast discussion, which you can get through some of the various different heavyweight apps out there, or you can go to weather.gov, type in the, uh, uh, the name of the airport up in the upper left, and then there's a map there and you click on that map and you eventually can find the forecast discussion on that page. Um, so ultimately it's a good product to, to be looking at on a regular basis. Sometimes some forecasters put a lot of energy and a lot of effort into this, and some don't. And there's some uh, situations where um, you know they they will uh, tell you right up front, we don't know, we're not sure. And as a result of that, this is what we're doing to help you out as best as we can. You're not going to get that kind of information from looking at the TAF itself. It's the area forecast discussions that provide a lot of that solid information uh, for those lower probability events. Okay. All right. So one last point here before we uh, jump into any questions. I always like to show this. If anybody's seen my presentations, they've, they've probably seen this before. This was an accident that occurred, I think, in Utah, along kind of a, a, a major highway here. And it turns out that that actually, that, that uh, pickup truck was actually headed the opposite direction they're pointing. And you can see there, there's the, um, in this particular case, there's the first responders there trying to help out. 
pretty ugly accident. And, you know, lots of details you can pick out there. But and really, it's not until you see the big picture here that you really realize what the issue was in terms of they were that close to dying in that particular accident. Uh, for the most part, this is not something that you want to, to be that close to the edge of death there. So in the end, the big picture is really important. So when I make decisions, when I'm flying, I'm not spending a whole lot of time worried about a lot of the de details. The details are clearly important, but my decisions are typically made whether I want to uh, go or stay or go later or change a route or change altitude, it's usually based on that big weather picture. There's a lot of information that can come from that big weather picture that you just can't get from the uh, from down in the weeds with the details. Yes, a pilot weather report may be very helpful. Yes, a terminal forecast may be very helpful, but it's that big weather picture that really rules the, the, the kingdom in terms of being able to understand what's going on in, in, in driving the weather for that particular uh, day. All right, so I promised at the end I would tell you a little bit more about my book here. It's the SKU-T Log PME, A Primer for Pilots. It's about 300 pages and has over 200 diagrams. And so I just, I joke, and it's basically a, a picture book uh, right up the alley for a lot of pilots there. So a lot of pictures, a lot of diagrams in that. And I have a soft cover and I have an ebook and I do an ebook with updates. I'm actually going to be turning this into a weather text where with the, with the essentially later on in the next couple of years, where the SKU-T diagram is actually the centerpiece uh, for the uh, for the book itself. So it's going to be a weather book with uh, a lot of discussion associated with the SKU-T log P diagram. Probably one of the things I, I, I tell pilots is that um, if you want to learn how to read the SKU-T diagram, you're going to have to learn weather, period. So I use it as a canvas to teach weather. I didn't learn that from the very beginning. I started teaching pilots how to use it. And I realized as I was going along here that I was actually teaching them about what causes icing, which causes turbulence, what causes thunderstorms, what causes showery precipitation. And so it's a really good background or, or canvas to be able to teach and learn weather. And, oh, by the way, when you finish uh, learning that, you know how to use a new tool to drill down and understand more about what's happening here. All right, so here's my website at easywxbrief.com. There's a 14-day free trial, so feel free to go out there and register for a trial for 14 days and check it out. And again, there's my URL, avwxtraining.com forward slash SKUT if you're interested in purchasing a copy. And I will be out at AirVenture um, so you, at, at Hangar C, so if you happen to be going to AirVenture, uh, please uh, stop by the booth and say hello. Okay, thank you, Scott. And we certainly do have some questions. Um, and I'd like to say uh, thank you so much for writing book uh, your book on the SKU-T Log P. I use it and I found it extremely helpful in better understanding weather and helping uh, instruct it also. So let's start with a, a clarification asked for by Dan. So Dan indicated he's a little confused about rain showers being the start of cumulonimbus. A rain shower is rain hitting the ground. He was taught that a towering cumulus is characterized by all updrafts, no falling rain as in a shower. Yeah, so we every um, every single uh, cumulus cloud goes through a, um, 
a growth process. Some grow to be, you know, congested cumulus and, and eventually get mixed out with the upper level uh, uh, air and in, in, you know, the drier air around it. Some will develop because if there's a lot more instability, develop into something that's a little bit more major. And eventually, if there's enough instability, it will eventually develop out into a thunderstorm if it gets tall enough. And in some cases, uh, in the case of the, the accident pilot that we were talking about earlier, um, those cells, unfortunately, could not grow up and grow into a huge, uh, you know, tall, towering cumulus that developed into a thunderstorm up at 35, 40,000 feet because the atmosphere did not support that. So the only thing that would support is essentially updrafts that eventually produced enough moisture because if you, if you, as air rises, expands, and cools, it condenses out. And if it condenses out into uh, large enough drops, they will eventually fall down through the updraft and rain themselves out. That's very common for uh, for these kind of rain showers. Uh, you get the the precipitation load heavy enough, and it will eventually cause that precipitation load to rain it rain that particular cell out. And you'll see these things pop up, and they develop, and then they dissipate pretty rapidly. Usually within a let's say um, maybe 20, 30 minute period is where you'll see that. And the other term we use for some uh, some thunderstorms, you might have heard the term air mass thunderstorm. Well, meteorologists don't like to use the term air mass thunderstorm, although you'll probably hear some use it. Uh, but the, the, the technical term is called a pulse thunderstorm. Same kind of situation. It develops into a thunderstorm and it's updraft and it's downdraft are basically right over top of each other. And that, that uh, updraft eventually uh, lets go of that pre- precipitation core and it rains itself out through the updraft. Um, and when you have a, a supercell thunderstorm, you have more of a tilt to that thunderstorm and it can continue to uh, bring in some of that moist and, and unstable air below and continue to uh, build that over time. So most pulse type thunderstorms end up again developing and rain themselves out with two, typically within an hour. Okay, thanks for that great explanation, clarification, Scott. Bob's wondering, so on a hot summer day with fair weather cues all around, how do we avoid these things visually? Well, <laughs> or yeah, it's, it's avoiding a, the possibility. <laughs> well, I always look at a couple of things. First of all, if I see that there's a uh, some rain shafts in the distance, especially if the base of the some of the clouds are up there around 10,000 feet or higher, and I see what essentially looks like Virgo or rain shafts, and I know I've got a convective process in place because I've done a good pre-flight analysis, and I know there's possible uh, convection going on. Notice I didn't say thunderstorms. Um, at that point, I would avoid any any you know, flying below any cells that look like that. And I know pilots from Florida would go, yeah, I would never fly if I never get in that situation. But personally, my rule of thumb is to try to keep blue sky above me where I can. And so I like to fly higher. I don't like to fly below. So if I like to fly, typically I try to, when the, most of the aircraft I fly, uh, to get up to fourteen or 16,000 feet so I can actually see what's going on out there and I can pick out all the enemies in the distance and I make uh, changes to my heading to stay around it so I can keep blue sky above me. And I tell folks is that if you find, if you're flying IFR, for instance, uh, if, you're, if you're making corrections of more than about 30 degrees, if you're having to get vectors of more than 30 degrees, you're probably making decisions too late and you're too close to the weather. So I, I, if I catch myself doing that, I know I'm putting myself in a lot more harm. So I try to make changes only, changes of you know, 10, 20 degrees at most 
in terms of being able to ask for vectors around that particular cell or weather. And that usually keeps me in a position where I'm making decisions early enough. And, you know, ultimately, if I see what's, if I can't do that, then I try to, uh, to basically descend down and land and wait it out. Okay. Thanks for the very practical uh, suggestion, Scott. And uh, reminder that direct two isn't always the way to go. Right. So Scott, Scott is wondering if you could tell us how old the TDWR data is from the time received at the site to a presentation on a computer screen. Well, if you are looking at it um, actually at the the console that uh, at the um, at the air traffic control center, um, it's pretty darn up to date. You're actually seeing the, uh, the activity occur right as kind of as it's happening. Now, if you're using like a, uh, an app like I use called RadarScope, um, you know, it's going to be somewhat delayed, maybe four or five minutes uh, delayed. So unfortunately, it's not going to be able to tell you. Plus, as that microburst starts to develop, it's not going to immediately have that dual node signature initially. It's not going to have that until the microburst has hit the ground and moved outward at that point in time, but uh, the software itself that's running at the uh, the terminal Doppler weather radar, and I know a lot about this because I helped, I helped write some of the software many years ago, and that particular um, um, dual node scenario is what we're looking for, and we can then at that point send an alert, which that alert eventually gets to the controller, and that controller can then alert the pilots. But you're talking several you know minutes before um, you know, even if you had a, a feed of the TDWR, which you don't have in the cockpit, um, you would be talking about five, six minutes old. Um, and even if you're using other things like, uh, for instance, radar scope, again, you're looking at something that's that's delayed. It's not going to be anywhere near real time. Right. So it's best to be aware of the conditions under which that may occur and just avoid that, as you said, keep the blue above. Uh, Nick was wondering, would it be accurate to say that microbursts are less likely to occur during widespread rain events? Um, widespread rain events um, in a sense of no convection. Um, yes, I mean, if you're talking about nimbostratus clouds and you're talking about a weather system, like maybe a, a, a you know, kind of a lake effect weather system or a, a, you know, Alberta Clipper weather system or one that's not producing any convection, Sure, in that particular case, just just heavy rain or even just, uh, you know, I've, I've many times gone out um, and flown in some pretty heavy rain and literally in smooth air. So what you're worried about is that convective process. So when you start seeing on your, your next red um, uh, presentation before you've, you're flying or even as you are seeing it, it may be using FISB or SiriusXM, you know, that's where you're starting to look for the cellular kind of appearance. So if that line of storms actually has a cellular appearance to it, and at that point in time, I would not tangle with it at all. But if it doesn't have that cellular appearance, even though it may be heavy, it's kind of washed out. I always use the, the example is if I took a, uh, a paintbrush and dipped it in a bunch of paint, uh, color paints, and then splattered it on the wall, that produces a cellular appearance. But if I took that paintbrush and then brushed it along the wall, so if you're looking for the difference between the two, when you're looking at the next rad depiction to determine whether or not you're dealing with a convective environment or one that uh, is non-convective and just will produce potentially some heavy rain. Okay, thank you, Scott. Uh, Lee is referencing your website with a question. Easy Weather Brief has a convection graph on the airport page. Does it try to predict this kind of convection slash turbulence? 
Yeah, so my application basically uses a bunch of models and pulls it together to determine what the environment is, is like. What you'll see is that I, I make a lot of heavy use of the shower concept. So when you see my, my um, there's, there's two different uh, components here. There's the convective component and there's the thunderstorm component. You say, well, gee, they're one of the same. But ultimately, you find in many cases that when you're forecasting the weather, and you may not have a thunderstorm kind of environment, but you still may have a convective environment. And so in my application itself, I kind of separate that out. So you can have a situation where you have almost no thunderstorm chances, very low, but you have a huge or high convective potential. And that's kind of what on the airport page that I use is I, I try to distinguish between the two. So again, pilots should not only stay away from thunderstorm potential, but they all should, should pay close attention to the convective potential. Okay, thank you. And you may be referencing back to that for Bruce's question. So Bruce is looking for a good practical suggestions. He's saying, what weather products suggestions do you have for gaining quick knowledge about convective deep moist convection information in a local area? You're talking about weather sources? Yes, weather products, he said. Weather products. Well, um, obviously, locally, um, a terminal forecast can be very helpful. Again, if you see showery precipitation or if you're reading through the area forecast discussion, that's all telling you that you've got a convective process in place or they may be talking about that in the discussion. Um, so terminal forecast gives you really a very, very narrow view. Uh, make sure that when you use terminal forecast, you use them for the intended use. You can't be in a situation where you um, you – fly from point A to point B and you pop through and look at all the different terminal forecasts along your route of flight. And you may find out that there's little or no convective uh, forecast, but you end up dodging thunderstorms or dodging convection the entire time because that terminal forecast is only valid five statue miles from the airport itself. So you can't use it as a zone or area forecast. So it's only to be used in the event that you're going to the airport or departing from the airport or using it as a potential alternate about the weather would likely be. So my big picture weather in terms of convection is to, first of all, look at the big picture itself, look at the uh, the prog charts, also look at the um, 500 millibar charts, look at the convective outlooks from the Storm Prediction Center. All those elements give you the big weather picture about what's happening, why, why you're getting the um, – uh, the, the convection on that particular day or in that particular area in time. And you can also look at skew T log P diagrams to determine, for instance, you can drill down in the area and determine how much instability. So if you have a lot of instability and you have a, a, a big wide uh, difference between lifting up a parcel and the actual temperature loft where you have a lot more what we call fat convective available potential energy, those thunderstorms, that convection can develop very quickly locally in, in a particular area versus what's called thin skinny cape or thin skinny convective available potential energy. You'll learn a lot about that if you happen to buy my um, skew T book. But in the end, what I like to do use a lot of is I look at the, uh, the forecast radar depiction. So for instance, a lot of different models will produce a forecast radar. And so that forecast radar depiction is a great tool to be able to understand better about how the atmosphere is poised. So you can start to better understand that, yep, in the next two to two to six hours, it appears that we're going to see an area of weather develop and it has a very cellular appearance to it. We saw not too long ago, a few days ago, up in the Great Lakes, there were, there were actually there was a SIGMET uh, for severe ice in that area. 
Again, it was due to a convective process in place. You say, well, gee, I'm up in the area and didn't hear any thunder. Well, that doesn't mean, again, because it's convective, doesn't mean necessarily you have lightning. In this case, there were a lot of little uh, areas of, uh, of very popcorn-like looking cells in that region. And anytime you get that convective element, you can actually drive a lot of moisture as you get air that's rising, squeezes out a lot of moisture in those updrafts, and you can get some pretty significant severe ice in that, in that scenario. But if you looked at the forecast radar, you could easily see it was very, very cellular appearance. So you could tell right away that if I'm flying through the area, I better stay out of the clouds unless I have a lot of, uh, you know, unless I'm flying a, uh, a turbofan airplane because, you know, turbojet airplane, because ultimately that uh, particular situation uh, drove up the icing potential pretty significantly. So I rely a lot on the big weather picture, also looking at the forecast radar depiction, uh, which gives you a better kind of understanding how all of it's going to evolve. Great. Thanks for those recommendations and also for reminding us that TAP is only for the five nautical area around the site. Okay, Lee, so Ali's obviously flight instructor. Uh, Lee indicates, so it sounds like he shouldn't be taking his students up during the period that of showers in the vicinity is in the forecast. Does the 20 nautical mile rule apply there? Yeah, so um, when you have a, you know, I'll, I'll give you my, 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 my dissertation, short dissertation of, uh, of this, uh, this issue here. So ultimately, anytime you see showery precipitation, that should immediately trigger the, the notion that, hey, this is a convective process in place. Okay. It may be that there's none of this convection is going to grow up to be big, you know, supercell thunderstorms. That's, that's a possibility. Um, so if you happen to be in a situation where you have these cellular appearance and you're flying around, you just have to stay away from those cells. Of course, you don't want to fly through those. Otherwise, you'll see exactly what we saw in the upset scenario in the accident that occurred. Um, and in that particular scenario, you want to you know, try to avoid flying under the stuff or through it. You want to fly around it. So you want to visually keep your, your visual sense. So as long as you're visually separating yourself from these showery precipitation situations, and you can tell that these are not you know, full-blown thunderstorms with lightning, you know, the 20-mile rule works really well. Um, if it's, it turns out that if it's severe thunderstorms that develop, you know, I keep my, my that 20-mile rule, I think is naive. I usually use a 50-mile rule, especially if I'm flying a, you know, in front of the cell. So I always try to fly around the backside of the cell uh, if at all possible. But even in showery precipitation, you just don't want to fly through it or under it. You want to fly around and keep blue sky above you, and that generally keeps you out of anything nasty. Um, but if, once you start to develop into full-blown thunderstorms where you see the big anvil shape and where you know the, the sky starts to get really dark in the area, that's where you're going to want to keep your 20-mile distance, or if it's severe weather, potentially uh, as much as a 50-mile uh, distance from those cells. Okay, thank you. Uh, Carol, so we're really honing in on looking for kind of specific guidance, and I think you're giving us a lot of it. Carol is wondering, so is there a good rule of thumb to avoid surprises like what happened to the Bonanza? For example, the combination of showery, showery precip in the forecast and a wide two-point spread, does that mean we should go visual? Yeah, so I, I personally, I know um, some of my, my good friends and CFIs would, would uh, probably slap me for saying this, but in the summertime, I don't do a lot of IFR flying. I do most of my VFR flying, so I can stay visual. So in that particular scenario, I would have not flown IFR. I would have flown VFR, 
And I would have made sure that I had to, to basically stay out of the clouds. If I can stay out of the clouds in that situation, I can stay out of the nasty convective turbulence. And again, I don't fly under this stuff if at all possible. Yes, you eventually have to land, but as you can see, uh, some of the benign looking cells, the one in Chandler or the one in, um, in Tucson, that looked pretty, you know, at least the one in Chandler didn't look at all that threatening. And if you were deciding to kind of land under that, uh, that would be problematic. I would wait if the airport I knew was under that, I would wait it out or I would go somewhere else. Um, I wouldn't necessarily be landing there. And in route, no. I just I would just keep my distance if at all possible and then keep blue sky above me where I could. Yeah, you're certainly giving us a lot to think about, especially up here in the Midwest where we're getting into the spring and summer flying seasons and uh, we're getting back into the clouds. Okay, Adam is wondering, is it more common for microbursts to form in front of a cell's movement or behind? Well, it's um, that's a hard question to answer um, because it really depends on the actual uh the, the actual storm structure itself. So you may see something different if a microburst is produced by some kind of a, um, uh, a supercell type thunderstorm where you have a pretty good tilt with it versus a, uh, in the case of like a pulse type thunderstorm or a convective rain shower, they'll typically happen kind of right underneath of it. So it's not like um, in many cases, you won't see it you know, happen a, a, you know, ahead of it or behind it. Uh, it generally happens in the main core because most of the uh, the smaller rain showers that occur are are pretty small in terms of their size, and so you get an updraft, and then you know the, remember the downdraft is the exhaust of a thunderstorm, if you will, and that that downdraft hits the ground and spreads out like pouring pan pancake batter on a griddle, and that produces that kind of uh, gust front or that outflow boundary associated with it. And it may or may not have precipitation associated with it in some cases. So it's really hard to, to give any specifics about where those microbursts may occur. It really depends on the storm evolution and what, you know, the storm structure itself. Okay. One of the things that makes them so dangerous. Okay. Yes. Uh, Bruce is asking a question which may take more time than you have to respond to. Which procedures or products do you use for your pre-flight weather briefing? Well, that's an interesting question and easy to answer. Just go to my YouTube channel and you can watch the last year's worth of, uh, of um, presentations and you'll see exactly what I use, um, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of times. So go to you know, youtube.com slash AVWX workshops and essentially uh, subscribe to that channel and watch all my you know, live and you know, eventually record it. Um, and you'll see all the various different products that come into play. Um, and of course, um, if I'm doing my own flying, I've got a cadre of other products I use. These are all available on my EZWXWeatherBrief.com uh, website uh, in, under the static imagery. So you'll, you'll see that I use that product uh, to do those morning briefs. Okay, very good. Just, just as you yourself would say, we all need to learn more and constantly study, right? There's no... right. There's no one piece, simple, simple answer other than go to your website. Right. <laughs> uh, Phillips really enjoyed your awesome presentation, but he does have a question. Would you be sure. kind enough to define convection or convective activity? He always thought convection is roughly synonymous with thunderstorms. Sure. Yes. And that's, that's, a, that's a great question. I love to hear that because it's, uh, you know, I can tell somebody's thinking through the problem and ultimately this is the lack of, of, what I would consider lack of education that most pilots don't get 
Um, and so you think about it, what happens is Mother Nature pours extremes. And any time you get an extreme in the atmosphere, Mother Nature tries to bring things back to an equilibrium. And so when you have the heating of the day kicking in, for instance, um, it, it strikes the ground, the, the sun beats down the ground and heats it up. And essentially, when you think about that, that produces a, an immediate imbalance. Mother Nature doesn't like that. So Mother Nature immediately starts to, to alleviate that imbalance. And how does she do that? She does that through the convective process. So heat gets convected away in the form of thermals. And those thermals rise, expand, and cool. And if they cool out, eventually cool out to, um, uh, in, to a point where they get saturated, then they can produce cumuliform-type clouds. And if there's enough instability aloft, if the, if the atmosphere is colder aloft, for instance, or if you have some kind of energy, outside energy contribution or lift through a frontal system or some upper-level uh, flow, um, that can also help and assist air moving even higher than that, producing deeper convection. Again, if it's deep enough, eventually you might get some lightning and also the possibility of some severe thunderstorms if you can get enough wind shear in the atmosphere. So the convective process is just a transfer of heat from one point to another, in this case, vertically. And that's what essentially what we see is convection. So con anytime convection itself, I mean, when you talk about convective sigmets, that doesn't, you don't, it's not a thunderstorm sigmet, although I, I hear a lot of the internet people talk about thunderstorm sigmets. That doesn't necessarily have to have lightning to produce a convective sigmet. So convection is just the process that's occurring. A thunderstorm is a very specific kind of convection, one that has lightning. So don't necessarily just uh, say, okay, there's some showery precip. I know a lot of pilots tend to listen to the word showers and they immediately equate that to a non-event. Unfortunately, that's that's probably a bad choice in most cases. Use the, the term showers and the term convection one the same. Okay. Thank you. And thank you, Philip, for asking a question that I'm certain a lot of people had, but really did uh, require some clarification. Uh, we have one final question from Karen. If I need, if you want me to repeat this more than once, just ask. Okay. okay. In Arizona, summertime, flying along away, uh, under and away from huge clouds, blue sky above and clear ahead, the only place rain fell on the plane, no visible cloud above or near above on the sides. What is this? Sounds like a puzzle. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, I, I get these kind of questions all the time, and they're, they're valid questions. It's just it's, um, it's hard to know for sure what the experience is was in that particular day and time. If I could go back and look at and say, all right, this is what was occurring at that time. It's really hard for me to make conjecture. I get a lot of people coming up to me either like at AirVenture or anywhere I do speaking engagements and they'll say, you know, hey, Scott, the other day I ran into this issue and you know, can you tell me what happened? And it's really hard without looking at the weather data to really know what was going on there. In some cases, you can have hail that, that manages to find itself well away from the center or core of the, the, the thunderstorm or the, or the convection itself. Um, you can have situations where you have uh, the, uh, pretty strong winds that, that carry precipitation in many events. Um, I've even been you know, told that in some cases they, they think it was from an, an aircraft that was shedding ice or something that they got hail you know, outside of a you know, pretty, uh, pretty significant uh, con convection. They went into this uh, you know, a shower or this, this thunderstorm picked up, you know, um, some ice and eventually had to shed that ice. And it, you know, it 
it came off the airplane, of course, and ended up uh, down through the ground and hit their airplane in flight. So, you know, things like that can happen. So I can't really answer it specifically. Okay. Well, thank you, Scott. And another very good question popped up. I believe you yourself, are you a glider pilot? I am not a glider pilot. It's on my bucket list of things. Um, we'll see if I, I can manage to get to that. Um, my, my plan is to retire in about five years from now. So um, maybe I'll, I'll get that uh, in. But um, I know that, you know, flying gliders is all about, uh, you know, understanding the weather probably better than just about any other form of transportation and in, in aviation. Of course, you know, balloon pilots also have a, a, a interesting uh, um, challenges as well. But um, I, I definitely am not a glider pilot, but one day I hope to, to eventually uh, become a glider pilot. Okay. Well, I can help you take care of that. And the, okay. the question is actually, any special comments or suggestions for glider pilots or CFIGs? Well, Other I would, than my, get more glider yeah, pilots. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, my biggest suggestion here is to buy my book, uh, the SKU T Log PME. It's um, if you are not looking, and this is the the thing that, that bothers me too, is that if you look at all the FA documentation, even the Glider Flying Handbook, the only mention of the SKU T Log P diagram is in the glossary, and that's it. That's and no other, no, nowhere else. I think that's a big big problem. To be honest, it's one of the reasons why I wrote this book. Uh, you know, when you start looking at the, the overall um, aspect of how important this tool is from, from a standpoint of a glider pilot, um, you know, it's also very, it, it, it provides a lot of information to those with uh, powered airplanes as well. So, you know, I, that's what I would do if I were you um, in terms of uh, suggestions is I would spend some time reading uh, and learning how to read the SKU-T diagram because that's going to help tell you where there's instability, potentially lift or mountain wave activity um, and, and as a result of that, you're going to you know, uh, understand better the environment that you're about to, to take off and soar in. It's true that the SKU-T log P's are much more widely used in the glider community than, yes. in, uh, yeah, than powered aircraft. Also, there's soaring forecasts in many parts of the country. And clearly, we have to get Scott become a glider pilot so he can write a specific book on weather for glider pilots, right? That's right. Okay. Having said that, thank you so much, Scott. I think we've all learned a lot about sweating the showers and not the thunderstorms this evening. And we look forward to hearing more for you uh, from you in the future.